Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Amen. All right, you could be seated if you like. Let's go in our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7. And uh, this morning, um, I'd like to talk about the way of the Lord being right. All right, that's all I need to say. Let's go home. We know that the way of the Lord is right, right? Uh, Luke chapter 7. Um, let me start out with these words by the prophet Hosea, not, not found in Luke, but it captures the thought. Hosea 14, verse 9. Uh, who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Uh, we're living in a time when people are failing to grow up. Isn't that true? Like uh, um, just the, the thought of uh, people living in their parents' basement until they're in their early 40s playing video games and using their life for that uh, seems like such a waste, doesn't it? Um, we have highly paid celebrities that are slapping at the Oscars, right? Um, basketball coaches who refuse the customary handshake after the game because the other coach didn't shake their hand, and so they're not going to shake that coach's hand. And I know these are these are little things, but um, I think we're starting to descend at the most visible level into pre-Christian morality, and these are really only symptoms of the cause. Uh, you know, that sometimes we we want to attack the symptoms, but there's root causes to all of these things. And what's at the heart of this really is that um, it's how we relate to Jesus or don't relate to Jesus. And do, we, do we do things God's way or do we do things our way? Um, as long as Jesus isn't allowed to be Lord, we're going to continue to descend into barbarism. That's the truth. It's that we'll cast off the moral restraints that God has put in place and we'll start to do things according to what our nature is and we'll give in to whatever our passions are or how we feel at a particular moment. And uh, we have to be authentic. This is, the, this is the world's wisdom, is to be authentic to our true self. And so if we're feeling angry, we should vocalize that. And the more public, the better. And the, the problem with that is, is that uh, if you're a Christian, is that that's counter to what Christ has called us to do. He's called us to subdue our passions. To, to uh, True authenticity is living the true self as defined by God. And it's, it's funny how there's a contradiction in that, that we talk about we've got to be our true selves, and what that means is no restraints upon who we are in our character. We just need to let that out, whatever that is. But we don't do that in terms of our hair. We don't do that with our fingernails. We don't do that with our clothing. We don't do that with our yard. We don't do that with our house. In every other area, we bring nature into subjection to what we think is good and right. We don't just let it be. Well, the grass just needs to be the grass, so let's just let it grow and be whatever it is. No, we tame it. How many are looking forward to the time you get to mow your yard? When I tell the people down south how short our mowing season is, uh, they practically fall out. You know, how can you live with all that cold? We only have to mow for three months, maybe two. Oh, that's how. <laughs> but I didn't tell them how we got to shovel our driveways all winter long. But but here's the point that I'm trying to make is that uh, we're living in a, a kind of day when we've thrown out um, Jesus as Lord, as a general uh, rule, and we live by our, with ourselves as Lord. And because um, only two things will tame us when Jesus is taken out of the way. And, and before that, there's only two things that really tame us. One is power, okay? Power will tame us, uh, like that found in the law, okay? So you, there's, fo- there's power found in the law, and the law will constrain us, and it will say to us, well, it should say to us, behave or, you know, you're going to spend some time away, or whatever it may be. You better behave or else the power of the state will come down upon you. Okay, that's one way. Uh, it's not ideal, is it? 
to have to have so many laws that it constrains us to live a certain way. The better way to live, I think, is that, uh, is that found in the Bible, and that's through holy love. Like that which uh, does what's right because, because God said, because we love God and we love other people and we want to do what pleases him. Isn't that the best uh, solution to morality is that everybody has an internal compass that's guided by God that we follow and we live by that rather than having to have all this tyranny from the outside telling us this is how you ought to live. Somebody, I was listening to a, a podcast this last week out of, out of Great Britain and uh, this, these guys that are hosting this, they're not Christians, but the person that they had on there said that some of the external laws that were given during this COVID time would have been unnecessary in other ages because people would have tried to do the right thing out of love. Okay, and I know that may be controversial even to say that, but I thought the point was really profound that what these guys were saying was there was a different time in which people cared more for each other than they do right now. And so we didn't have to have so many external things compelling us, like they called it, these draconian laws. We didn't have to have that because people were governed by the law on the inside. They said, I want to try to do what's right, regardless of how you feel about all of the COVID. We want to try to do what's right for one another because something is working on the inside of me. Okay, That's uh, so important. And I think there is in uh, this passage in Luke where a question comes up. Uh, the question comes up about who Jesus is. And, and Jesus answers the question and then uh, he uses it as an opportunity to address some stuff. Okay, You know what I mean by that? Like there's, there's this issue that comes up and he deals with that, but then it leads into uh, a bigger discussion. And that's what happens in Luke chapter 7. And uh, if you read the first part of this chapter, you find Jesus raised this little boy from the dead, okay? And then we come into verse 21, and it says, uh, actually, verse 18, and it says there, um, John's, disciple told, John's disciples told him all about these things that Jesus was doing or doing. Uh, calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John, the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? And At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and, and gave sight to many who were blind. And so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A, a reed swaying in the wind? Uh, what did you go out to see? If, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? no. Uh, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I'll tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there's, there's uh, no one greater than John. And, of course, Jesus is not in that discussion because he's greater than John. We would understand that. Uh, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, uh, to what can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her children. Okay, so this is a... Uh, passage, and it's kind of a long passage, and it's kind of involved. And so the first thing we should talk about here is the question 
of disappointed expectations that came from John? Why is John sending his disciples to ask these kinds of questions? Uh, His disciples tell him about what Jesus is doing. He's hearing good things. And so why is he questioning whether Jesus is the one or we should expect someone else? The first thing I think you should know about John is that he was born for the very purpose of announcing and preparing Israel for Jesus coming. That's why he that's how why he was born. In fact, he understood his purpose and and could I suggest to you really this is the purpose of all of us is is we're born to welcome Jesus into our lives. That's God's purpose for every one of us. But but John's purpose is uh, is broader than that. He's to announce to Israel the coming of Jesus. And so when his ministry begins to decline, he says I have to decrease so that he can increase. It's my time of, and my responsibility are coming to an end, but the reign of the Messiah is here. And so he had certain expectations about what that meant. John lived in the wilderness by wild ways. Okay, so he's not fancy. He's not, he's not wearing Armani. He's not uh, uh, eating at uh, fancy restaurants. He's eating locusts and wild honey, like whatever he can scrounge up. Okay. So he's kind of like an Elijah-type figure. And so John lives in the wilderness by wild ways. And so he goes out into the wilderness, and when he preaches, people go out to the wilderness to hear him and to deal with their sin problems, which is kind of interesting. Have you ever come across one of those churches that is way out in the middle of nowhere, but they're thriving? Man, there's a few churches like that in where I grew up in Kansas where it's like you got to go way out of your way. It's some small church that's on the crossroads of two country roads with fields all around it, and yet it's booming. It's like, what are you going out there to see? This is John the Baptist. What are they going out there to see? Well, he preaches in the wilderness, and he lives by wild ways. He preaches a hard message, a message of repentance and baptism. His message is repent, get your hearts ready, change your minds about your bad behaviors, and be ready for the coming of, of God. Welcome him, however he may come into this situation. And the real question of that call is, are you going to go on living your sinful ways, or are you going to yield your life when Christ comes? Okay, that's the question. And So he's preaching this kind of Message: Jesus comes on the scene. His ministry begins to take off. And if you know about John the Baptist, you know that he's related they're by cousins to Jesus. Um, his ministry begins to fade, not because he's unimportant, but his mission is really coming to an end. And then it tells us in Luke chapter 3, verse 19. So this is, we're in Luke 7, right? And Luke 3 is before Luke 7. In Luke 3, uh, we, t- we hear that John the Baptist... Uh, preached or said something about Herod Tetrarch uh, shacking up with his brother's wife, right? And so uh, John the Baptist calls him out on that. He speaks truth to power. And power didn't like it, so power threw him in the clink. So John the Baptist is in prison, and uh, he's got disciples. I want to point this out. Jesus wasn't the only one with disciples. It's just that no other disciple got the privilege of sitting around Jesus like Jesus' disciples did, right? So uh, it's something to be a disciple. It's another thing to be a disciple of Jesus. In fact, uh, we hear early on in John that two of Jesus' disciples uh, used to be John's disciples, and then he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, and here's the one that's greater than me. And so his disciples, with John saying that, we're going to go follow the better guy. And so they did. So John's been in prison, and because he's in prison, he has some questions because things don't appear to be unfolding the way that he expected them to. And and so let me ask you a question that will bring us into a relatedness with this issue. Have you ever been disappointed when you came to serve God that some things still remain the same? Anybody been there? Okay, like you expect, I know... Uh, when I got saved and came into ministry, I had this illusion that when I preached, everybody was going to surrender to Christ and the first day, and then it was just going to be glory and rapture soon, right? And uh, so I had these expectations that, man, if you really love God, if you really pray, if you really study and prepare, 
then everything is just going to naturally fall into place. Everybody's will is just going to crumble and give in to Jesus the first day. And those, those were some disappointing days. And I was asking the question, what's wrong with me? And, and maybe there was something wrong with me, but uh, my expectations were way out there. And so I wanted to point that out because I think we probably all have some kind of expectations. Like if, it's, if we're serving God, shouldn't things be going better in our lives? Shouldn't there be less problems and better days and all of these things? And uh, maybe the problem is not God. Maybe the problem is our expectations of him. I think this is where John the Baptist finds himself in this place where uh, he wasn't expecting it. He expected the Messiah to come with power. When when he comes, he's going to usher in a new reign. He's going to He's going to release the prisoners, and yet John finds himself imprisoned to a tyrant. How can you make sense of that? And so I want to point out the fact that there's a spiritual reality that's going to be followed by a physical reality. But sometimes in the moment, the physical reality has not yet changed. You understand what I mean by that? Like our, our healings, for example, sometimes, I mean, we're praying for healing. We're believing for healing. God is going to heal every believer at some point. And whether that's in this life or the next, you will be healed. So I, I want to point that out. But sometimes we're still battling through, my body's not healthy right now. And Jesus, I thought you were the healer, and we prayed about this. Well, I want to point out that he's the healer even if you still are sick. He's still the healer. And he's still the liberator, even though John's in prison. Okay, so there were some disappointed expectations about Jesus. And so John sends his disciples and says, did I get this wrong? Are we expecting you or somebody else? Because I don't, this isn't how I imagined it. So what does Jesus do? He points to some things here. He replies to the messengers, look at verse Uh, Verse 21, but before he does that, it tells us some things about what Jesus is doing. I want to take a few moments here. It's going to feel like a sidetrack, but it's right here in the text, and I want to take a few moments to deal with it so that we uh, have some better understanding of these things, then we'll get right back on topic. But uh, here it says Jesus was performing miracles in verse 21 and 22. Verse 21 says this, at that very time, John's messengers came, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases and sicknesses and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. Okay, so he talks about three categories of areas that Jesus cured. So can we take just a couple minutes and talk about this? Uh, It says, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. So please, please try to follow this closely so there's no misunderstanding. Luke talks about three conditions, and actually four, but three conditions in particular here that Jesus healed, that that cured is the verb, and then it talks about the things that he cures them of. The first is diseases, and I just want to point this out because this is, this is stuff that everybody is dealing with all the time, okay? So there are diseases. These are physical maladies, disease, illness, things that we battle with. We get colds, we have migraines, uh, sometimes we're dealing with chronic illnesses, things that are that are ongoing that are, I almost want to quote that verse. I know it's not it's out of context, but you know th- these things that have taken you are common to humanity. Okay? So these are these kinds of things. So that's one category. And then it goes on to another word that sounds like it's a redundancy, but it's not. Because it says here sicknesses. Unfortunately, I don't want you to take the word sicknesses as always meaning this. But the Greek word that stands behind this is a word that means a condition of great distress. And the ESV, the NAS, the King James all have plagues. Plagues. That sounds odd, doesn't it? Like That sounds like something out of Exodus. Plagues. And uh, it's the same word. This Greek word is the same word as a scourge. He healed people who had a scourge. Or a whip is another way this word's translated. That sounds odd, doesn't it? The word sickness, as I said, doesn't mean this every time in the Bible, so you shouldn't, like, bar sickness from your vocabulary. But the Greek word is metagoo, metagoo. And uh, so please don't think that every sickness is God's punishment, but 
what this word is talking about is when someone is sick because they're under divine discipline. Okay, so Jesus healed sicknesses. There's one category. He also, in this uh, instance, cured people who are under some kind of divine discipline, and their sickness was the manifestation of that. Okay, I, I want you to listen very closely because this is really, really important. Uh, when uh, English doesn't really have a good word to translate this, plague has some baggage with it uh, so that it's not the perfect word either, though I think it gets closer to what's meant here. And so Jesus cured those who were sick, people that had ordinary stuff that comes with being human. He also cured people that were, because of some kind of uh, divine discipline in their life, were battling with a physical condition. Okay. And then the third category he deals with is evil spirits. He cured. The verb is cured. He cured those with evil spirits. Isn't that interesting? He cured those with evil spirits. Uh, uh, demons, uh, some want to make a distinction, but the New Testament uses demon and evil spirit interchangeably, so we don't need to argue on that. But in other words, and, and here's what I think is being said. Three things about illness. Sometimes they come from living in a fallen world as an indirect consequence of sin. Okay, so in other words, there are sicknesses that we face that we face because we live in a world that's fallen. Not because you did something wrong, but because as humans, we're fallen. Okay, I want to tell you this is liberating. If you live under the assumption that every sickness is a demonic attack, or under the presumption that every sickness is a divine punishment, there's another category. And that's those things that come, not because you did something wrong, but because you got around somebody who had the bug. Maybe this isn't as profound to you as it was to me. This is really, I think there's some profundity to this. Okay, so sometimes there's that. In other words, some physical problems are happening because uh, we live in a decaying world. Some can be from God as a disciplinary act to get a person's attention. Okay, I, I want to caution us here, and I'll, I'll say more about that in a minute. But uh, then there are some that can be uh, sick because a person is being attacked by the enemy. And for unbelievers, they may be the result of being inhabited or under the control of a demon. Okay, I know we got real on Sunday morning, didn't we? <laughs> We're talking about some some heavy stuff here. And so I didn't want to make too much of this because there are pitfalls around all of this. And that's the, the danger is to assume that you're, uh, whatever sickness you're dealing with is a punishment from God. You can't assume that because it's not always that way. Okay, And the, the other danger, uh, and, and so I would just say further on that, it's, it's, I don't think it's right to assume every disease is a direct punishment for sin, like a one-to-one -one equation. I got a cold today because I had a bad attitude the other day. Don't, don't do that. You'll get yourself into an area of bondage doing that. Um, so there's, there's danger in doing that. At times, God can use sickness to get people's attention or to discipline them, and we see that in Scripture that there are times and the reason I want to make this distinction today is because there are extremes. Some say sickness is always the result of direct sin, and others say sickness is never the result of sin. Some sicknesses are the result of the evil one, and some are not the result of the evil one. You can find places in Scripture where similar kinds of sicknesses are attributed to nature, some are attributed to God, and some are attributed to the devil. That'll bust your theology. When you think about it that way, that, that's the way the Scripture describes that. But I want to be careful that we, we don't just lock into one category here. And I want to say a few words about this before we move on by way of hope. First, if you're a believer, you may be attacked by evil spirits, okay? But you cannot be under the control of evil spirits. Come on. It's true. You cannot be under the control of evil spirits because the Bible says you, you are the servant of the one you obey. If at some point we turn away and we, we start falling down that road and going down that road, there's a point at which that relationship is cut off 
and we are following the ways of the devil. Okay, And I would suggest to you, and there are places in Scripture that point to this, that at that point you're not a child of God. Okay, But we can't be under the control of the enemy. The Bible says when you're saved, you're not under his dominion anymore. So you're liberated in that particular way. We can still surrender ourselves to do bad things. Christians do that. But I want to say to you as well that believers are not demon-possessed. They're not demon-possessed. Believers are not demon-possessed. You can't be inhabited by the Holy Spirit and demons. So I want to encourage you that on the other side of that, there is oppression where enemy can attack you from outside. And he can fight against your life. Paul was not demon-possessed, but he had a thorn in the spirit, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. So he was fighting against some kind of what we might call oppression that the enemy brings. This is, a, this is something from the outside. This is a continual attack that can happen. The enemy can do that, but not demon-possessed. And here's the message of hope. Jesus cured them. Jesus cured them. He cured them. He graced them. It goes on to say, um, when it says at the end of verse 21, he gave sight to many who were blind. I'd like you to notice, he cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. The word for gave there is the word we use for grace. He graced them with sight. Isn't that beautiful? This is God's healing work through Jesus. And so, uh, John's disciples are seeing all of these things. And so this is the word of hope, I think, is that Jesus cured diseases, okay? These, these natural things in, in this uh, terminology, these natural things that happened to us. Jesus healed people who had colds probably and uh, were dealing with, you name it, whatever kind of sickness they, they may have had. He dealt with them, these things that come as a result of being in, in a decaying world with fallen nature. He healed them. He cured them. Okay? And, and here's the other word of hope, is he cured those who were under the scourge of God's displeasure. Okay? I think this is profound today, that you know that God is able, Christ is able to heal those who are under uh, God's displeasure for one reason or another. Okay? He's, he's a healer of every kind of disease. If, if it's a natural thing, uh, you're battling with your bodies, breaking down, Jesus can heal those. If it's a sickness, as a result of sin, Jesus is the healer and the forgiver of those things. We see it, the man who was brought down on the mat, that he said, your sins are forgiven, take up your mat and walk. In James 5, remember, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. And then it says, and if, that, that's a big if, if they have committed sins, they will be forgiven. The fervent prayer of a righteous man makes much power available. And then it goes on to say, uh, therefore, confess your sins to one another, your faults, your sins. And pray for each other that you may be healed. So that's God's call. And so whether it's a natural thing, whether it's a scored, or even if it's demonic, it may be an attack like the messenger of Satan. God can deliver you from that. And also, if you're under the control of the demonic, Jesus has the power over that spirit and he can deliver you and save you. So these are the things that are happening when John's disciples show up. Then uh, he says to them, go back and tell uh, John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So he he mentions their um, condition and then he mentions what's happening to them. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, uh, the leprous are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and then if we were to follow the same pattern, it would be the poor uh, have the good news proclaimed to them. So that's what's happening. He says to him, take back this report. And so you want to know whether uh, I'm the Messiah or not? He's answering John's honest question. By the way, I don't think God is offended by honest questions. John the Baptist asks an honest question. Jesus isn't offended. John the Baptist has been doing ministry with Jesus. He's still got questions. And he's not, Jesus is not offended. He says, hey, go tell him, here's the signs, here's the validation and the credentials of my Messiahship. And he points out these things. Go back and report these things. Well, what do these have to do with anything? John would have understood the relation to the Old Testament. Isaiah 35, uh, 3 and following, strengthen the feeble hands. 
Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear your God will come and he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come and he will save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open, the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Those with lame, those with lame feet will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. So John would have known Isaiah 35. Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What did Jesus say? Tell John, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, I am the one about whom Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 61. And he's pointing back to these scriptural indicators of who he is. Yeah, John, I might disappoint what you think my mission ought to be, but I'm not disappointing what God has prophesied about the Messiah. The day of the vengeance of God will come. That's for the future. Okay? But what's happening right now is all the grace that God can give. He's, he's pouring out on humanity through me. In Luke chapter 4, he uh, quotes that same thing where Jesus comes into the synagogue and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he quotes Isaiah 61. So why is John asking that question? Well, he's had certain expectations of the Messiah, which isn't how it turned out to be. So he's disillusioned. He wants to know, did I get it wrong? If Jesus came to free the oppressed, why am I imprisoned by an evil king? Sometimes our expectations are disappointed because our expectations of God are wrong. And it's not to say he won't do all that he's promised to do, but there's, there's stages in all of this. There's an already, but there's a not yet. Uh, there's something that we anticipate. You know, the Bible talks about, in terms of physical difficulty, it talks about, uh, and we groan inwardly, waiting for our adoption with the fullness of the kingdom to come in Romans 8. So there's still an eager anticipation for what will come. But you know what I think is happening? Is a lot of times we want to say, God, I kind of like the way things are right here. I would like you to bring heaven down here. And let's have heaven now. Because I don't want to leave this pretty good life to go somewhere else or for there to be a new program, I want, you to, I want you to bless what's already going on, like bless the mess instead of, God, uh, I want what you want, and if your full blessing comes beyond this life, then I'm for that. I'm going to serve you in the mess anyway. That's the kind of difference there would be. Jesus never promised that saying yes to him would mean no problems. Man, this is great preach. Everybody's encouraged to aren't you? Pastor said we're going to have problems. Jesus said we're going to have problems. How could he be so negative? In the world, you'll have trouble. Thlipsis. Remember we talked about that last week. The, the trouble, the, the plow that rides through, the one that threshes out the grain. In the world, you'll have that. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In other words, you'll go through that, but it will not conquer you because I've already conquered it. That's the good news. So Jesus addresses this, and he says, all of these things have happened. And then he says, and blessed is anyone who does not stumble because of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble because of me. Take this back to John and tell him, blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble because of me. Blessed here. Um, it's the same word that's used early in the Beatitudes. Blessed are this and blessed are that. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemaker. They'll be called sons of God, children of God. And so this is the same word, and the, the Greek word is makarios, and it describes an island of happiness, that that can be yours in God. And one thing about uh, islands a lot of times is that in some ways they're not so much touched by the mainland. If you grew up on an island... You probably know this, that in some ways the mainland seems so distant and far, and the island has its own unique flavor. Okay? There's a blessedness about following God. And he says, blessed is anyone who does not uh, find offense in me. Okay? It points to happiness, but not happiness in general, not a secular kind of happiness. It means the joy that comes from the presence and approval of God, that joy will come on the person who sees Jesus for what he is and not as a stumbling block. So it is 
It's being happy, but it's being happy or joyful because of the favorable circumstances. Joe pointed to that this morning when we, we had our call to worship, that there is joy because we stand in right relationship to God. We have his favor, that despite problems, we know where we're going. We know that his, uh, his promises are true and that we will overcome all of this. And so there's a joy in that that brings us through all of this. Think about those who party for no reason. They don't even know what they're partying, and it gets old. You wonder, what is this even about? They're partying because they want to bury the fact that deep down there's real hopelessness. On the contrast of that, and the contrast of that is that we can have joy despite present difficulties because we know the joy that awaits us beyond this moment. It not only awaits us, but is here now. There's a kind of joy that can settle in because our sins have been taken away. Thank God. We're blessed. And he says, blessed. This is a message back to John. Blessed are those who don't stumble in me. The word that stands behind this is the word we get scandal from. 29 times in the New Testament, only three of them are not in the Gospels. Stumbling is to be scandalized or to be offended. Offended is another way this could be uh, translated. And what I found out is that... um, this picture of scandal, it actually, the, the verb that's used here actually relates to a noun, which is a bait stick, a bait stick. And so the bait stick is um, a trap, and it triggers off trouble in somebody's life. So Jesus is saying, you don't understand, John? This is a message back to John. Blessed are those who don't get offended in me, or because my, my particular way isn't what you expect, that you don't stop following. Blessed are those who don't give up following just because they don't understand what God's doing. Are you with me? If we don't, then we stumble. We're scandalized. We're, we're caught in a trap. And there are people that because they've had disappointed expectations in God, they're not really following him anymore. God, you didn't do what I thought you would do. You didn't provide the way that I thought you should. Or heal the way that I thought you should. Or who I thought you should. Or, man, I thought when I came to you that my business was going to take off. It didn't. Whatever it might be, we can find ourselves disappointed in God and say, man, you let me down. And we can stumble as a result of that. And Jesus is saying, you're in prison. In fact, things are going to get far worse for John. Do you know that? If you know the story. But he's fulfilled his purpose in this life, and his life will be blessed because he trusted in Jesus. Blessed are those who don't stumble because of me. You know, there are a lot of people who are offended because of Jesus. The people of Jesus' hometown were offended in Matthew 13. They were offended. It's like, this is the son of Joseph who we know. We know all of his brothers and his mother and his sister. Uh, and he's claiming these things, and they were offended, like disappointed. Like, you're calling yourself the Messiah? We know what you're like. And Jesus says, you know, a prophet's not without honor except in his own country. The disciples took offense at his sufferings. The Bible says that, that they took offense. They stumbled at his sufferings. Peter, when Jesus said, I must go to the cross, Peter said, you'll never go to the cross, Lord, because he couldn't see it. He couldn't see that the wisdom of God took it in an mysterious and unpredictable direction. Like you're not, you're supposed to conquer. You're not supposed to be conquered. But Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're standing in in the way of the cross. And Jesus avoided that temptation that somehow he could achieve the kingdom without facing a cross. We see that, uh, Peter took offense at Jesus' words, the one I just mentioned. And the Pharisees were offended at Jesus' teaching because it contradicted their understanding of the law. So people were offended, and Jesus says, don't be offended because of me. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble. And so I would encourage you today, as we're thinking about uh, Jesus, that we not let our disappointments stand in the way of what God wants to do in our lives and to continue to trust him. Look at verse 24 with me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to talk to the crowd about John. 
this is where his humor begins to take off. I don't know if you've ever thought of Jesus as humorous, if you think he's all he's serious all the time. He's serious. This is that distinction we were talking about earlier. He's serious, but he can also do it with joy. You know what I mean? He can be he can be talking about serious, heavy stuff, but he's joking here. I don't know if you caught that when we read it. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? He's talking about John. Did you guys go out for the scenery? A reed shaking in the wind, what is there to see in the wilderness? Do you go out there to see some scenery? That's funny. Maybe not to you. It is funny to me. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Can you almost hear the smile in Jesus' voice as he's saying that? Because everybody knows John wasn't dressed fancy. He was wearing goat skin, right? He wasn't dressed in the latest fashions. What did you go out to see? A guy dressed in fine clothes? No, no. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury, they're in palaces. You didn't go out to the wilderness to see that. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. You went out to see a prophet. Yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet. What does he mean, a prophet? John was called to be the last of the Old Testament prophets that would point to who Jesus is. And more than a prophet. Why is he more than a prophet? Because he's the last of a line, and he got to see its fulfillment in Jesus. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, but he didn't see him until he died. John prophesied about Jesus, and he got to see it in his lifetime. And he's the last of a line of prophets that point forward to the prophet. The prophet of all prophets. This is the one about whom it's written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. Okay, so Jesus is saying, John is great. Maybe some people overheard the questions that John had and the doubts that John may have had and thought maybe John isn't as great a prophet. And Jesus is saying, no, he's the greatest among people. Nobody's better than him. But then he says something really strange Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does he mean? The one who trusts, this is a way of contrasting the old and the new. The one who trusts in the Lord and receives salvation and enters the kingdom of God has more than all the Old Testament had to offer. That's what he's saying. As much as John was great, if you enter into the kingdom of God, you surpassed surpassed John. At least at that moment, certainly John, I believe, uh, was saved. Verse 29 moves into uh, this picture here of those who accept and those who reject. Look at what it says. All the people, verse 29, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law, they rejected God's purposes for them because they had not been baptized by John. They had not been baptized by John. So here it uses this word that all the people and even the tax collectors, it's getting to be around tax time. I don't know how you feel too much about your IRS, your local IRS agent. But here uh, Jesus lifts them up a little bit. Everybody hates the tax man. But Jesus is saying, hey, even the tax collectors, they listen. Now, in, we get mad because they take our money. But in Jesus' day, it was because the tax that they were taking was from the people of Israel, and they were giving it to Rome. And that was a problem. It felt like a little bit of an unpatriotic thing to do. In fact, not a little bit, a lot. So they were despised, and a lot of them were crooked, and they would, they would uh, take off the top. You know what I mean? Like, don't just give me your taxes. Here's how much you owe, but they would, they would pad the tax bill so that they could get rich on it. When, when uh, uh, Zacchaeus becomes a Christian, he turns to Christ, he says, if I've cheated anybody, I'll pay it back four times. So something changed in his heart, but these tax collectors, they weren't well esteemed. But all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard the words of Jesus, they acknowledged God's way was right. Acknowledge God's way was right here means to render a favorable verdict. They, they said they had a divine yes to what God had said in their heart, and they were affirming that. They said, yes, that is right. And this brings us 
to, I think, uh, a step away a little bit from John the Baptist's question is that what does our heart say about God's way? Are we, are we looking for God to affirm our way, or are we saying, yes, God's way is right? That's the difference here. And he says, because they had been baptized by John. So uh, the issue here isn't that the baptism that they underwent uh, changed their heart and made them followers of God, but the heart that caused them to go get baptized by John was a heart that yielded to Christ's coming. So they're already in the yes mode towards God. They went and they got baptized by John, and their hearts were prepared for the coming of Jesus. So when Jesus comes, their hearts were already saying, we want what God has for us. And so when he came and he lived a certain way and he preached a certain way, their hearts were saying yes to him and not no. But then it seems like the Pharisees here, it doesn't seem like this, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law, they rejected God's purposes for them. They rejected God's purposes. That means uh, to reject is invalid. So on one side, you have people saying a yes, and the other side, you have a people saying no. You have some that are saying, yes, that's true, and others saying, no, it's not true. And it all had to do not with who Jesus was, but the condition of the heart of the hearer. Are you with me on this? That what puts us in a place where we are receptive to God is having a heart that is saying, not my way, but your way. And I think too many times people pray a prayer in a moment of desperation where they're saying, my life is not going well, and I want, uh, I want things to be different in my life. And not realizing that the undercurrent of that thinking is, I want to add God as an accessory to my life that will make it better. Like I still want my life, but I want Jesus to make it better. And that's not, that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is an abandonment of all to him. Saying, not my life anymore, your life. I don't want you just to come bless my life. You take this life and use it for what you will. Do you see the difference? One is a matter of surrender. The other is a matter of pleading, please come make this better. The other is a, a total surrender and saying, this can't be made better. I have to abandon it to you. Take it and make of it what you will. This is the position these people were in. The, all the people, even the tax collectors, are getting saved and saying to Jesus, we acknowledge your way is right. We vindicate what you're saying as right. Our hearts are echoing yes to what you have to say and not no. But the Pharisees, these are the people who are ultra-conservative. Here's what I've thought about many times. When you talk about Pharisee, you probably mean something a little bit like, in Judaism, comparable to evangelical Christians in America. The same things. We want to do what's right. We want to have a heart for God. But so many times it becomes a list of legalistic rules that say, this is righteousness. And not all Pharisees were bad, by the way. But many of them, they, they wanted to follow the rules. They didn't really want a relationship. Okay? And then you have the people who knew the Bible best, the experts in the law, the scribes. These are people that are copying down the Bible every day. They didn't have printing presses back then. If you wanted more copies of the scriptures, you took one scroll over here that had the scriptures and one scroll that was blank, and you copied word for word. And this is what they did all day long. Do you think they knew it? They knew it. They knew the Bible well. But their heart wasn't receptive to God. You can know the Bible well and not know your God. And there are others that don't know the Bible well, but they know God. And I, I'm not suggesting, I think if you know God, you're going to want to know Scripture better and better. Okay? But I'm saying knowing Scripture isn't a guarantee of authentic relationship with Him. And so we have to, we have, to have both. It's not either or. It's both and. And so these people rejected God's ways. I'm, I'm running out of time here, but let's, uh, let's move quick with this. Jesus went on to say, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they, what are they like? And uh, we find him often doing this, of describing the generation that he's speaking to. And the really interesting thing to me is that a lot of times when he describes that generation, he describes our generation. You found that to be interesting. This is what that generation is like. Listen to what they're doing. 
Why can't I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children. They're like children. Sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other. So if you would, in your mind, picture a busy marketplace and the kids sitting on the curb, calling out to one another. And they're, they're saying, Here's, what do you want to play? What do you want to play? This is what I want to play. And you'll find kids will do this. I remember from being a kid, and I've heard it since. That's not what I want to I don't want to play that. I want to play that. I don't want to play that. This is the kind of thing that he's talking about here. And they're calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you, but you didn't dance. And we sang a dirge, and you did not cry. Daryl Bach calls this the parable of the brats. They're people who want to sit on the sidelines. They're, if you're not, not going to play, then I'm just going to take my toys and go home. I'm going to take my ball and go home. And uh, uh, so they're sitting there and saying, we tried to play, but you wouldn't play on our terms. So we're not going to play along. And he's saying, this is what these people are like. That God cannot please them because they want God on their terms. Are you with me? So, so the difference is, the true heart of surrender said, God, I will take you on your terms. Okay, what you say about yourself is right. The heart of selfishness, and oftentimes, sadly, uh, a consumerist heart says, I want a God like what I want. In other words, we get so many options. How many have ever found yourself um, stumped by all the options? Should I have Havarti or provolone or cheddar or American uh, cheese or whatever? There's too many options. Should we eat here or should we eat there? It's suddenly coming to food, isn't it? We're, we're getting hungry. This car or that color, a car, red, blue, green. Um, we've got all kinds of options that stand before us, and especially in today's world, don't we? And sometimes that can come into our religious life. We can even deal with church in that way a little bit. Like, I like this particular thing. I like that. And we can do that with, with God. We can try to fashion a God in our image according to our desires. And that's really the, the heart of idolatry is to make a God in our image, to make God suit us. You know what is so um, convenient about idolatry is that it's a God with no demands. We're the, we're, in the, we're the ones in control. But when you deal with the wild and untamed God, and I don't mean wild in the sense of he, he is careless or reckless. I mean in the sense that he cannot be controlled by you and me. We're dealing with a God who is fierce. Our God, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, is a consuming fire. Think of that, that it's, you want to give him a little bit, he wants to take all. So, but this generation, they sit on the curb and say, we sang, uh, we played our pipe for you, a happy song. You didn't dance. And then we sang a dirge. You know what a dirge is, right? That's the funeral song. And you didn't cry. You won't play the way we want you to. Then he goes on to explain this in verse 33. For John the Baptist came neither uh, eating bread nor drinking wine. He was a Nazarite. He didn't drink wine. He didn't, he didn't eat fancy meals. Uh, and you said, he's demon-possessed. So you stand out there as one that is the critic of whatever God is doing. And then the Son of Man comes. You didn't like John, but the Son of Man comes, and he comes eating and drinking wine. And you say, he's, uh, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Isn't it interesting? The criticism comes from both sides. G.K. Chesterton talks about this in his book, Orthodoxy. And it's really interesting. It's kind of involved and it's got a deep argument. But one of the things he says is um, he's, talking, he's talking about his pursuit of Christ. And he comes out of a uh, either agnostic or atheist framework. And he's... He's evaluating Christianity, and so he's describing this after he's become a Christian. And he says, 
he hears all about Christianity from the different critics, and he says, what could this astonishing thing be which people were so anxious to contradict? He said that in doing so, they even didn't mind contradicting themselves. He says, imagine an unknown man spoken of by many men. Suppose we were puzzled to hear that some said he was too tall and some said he was too short. That some objected to his fatness and some to his leanness. That some thought he was too dark and some thought he was too fair. Imagine a man like that. Okay, And then he said, one explanation could be that he might be an odd shape. But there's another explanation. He might be the right shape. Outrageously tall people thought he was too short. Very short people might think that he was too tall. And so it goes. Each one judging him to be peculiar from their own place. Chesterton says, perhaps after all, Christianity that is, uh, it's Christianity that's sane and all of its critics are mad in various ways. I think that ideally fits in this passage that these people don't want to adjust to God. They want God to adjust to them. And in one moment, their mood is, we need a God who lightens up. Jesus comes and he's lighthearted. Well, he's a glutton and a drunkard. John comes and he's austere. Oh, that guy's got a demon for sure. The problem was they didn't want to take God the way that he came. And I'm not saying John the Baptist is God, but you understand, he's bringing the way of God. He's, pre- he's preparing for the Messiah, but they were not ready to accept him. And the problem was in their heart. The problem was in their heart. And uh, I found it to be really interesting here. This, I think Jesus shows his humor even in this. He says, you guys are like a bunch of kids. You can't decide on the game to play, and so you're not going to play at all. And so the Pharisees... The teachers of the law, the experts in the law, they wouldn't be baptized. We're just going to stay away from, we're going to steer clear of all of that because we don't understand what God's doing. John the Baptist at least asked an honest question. These guys are just dismissive. So Jesus says some final thing here. He says, uh, but wisdom will be proved right by all her children. Wisdom will be proved right by all her children. See, there's two types of children that are described here. You've got in verse 32, the children sitting in the marketplace and calling out. In verse 35, you've got wisdom, wisdom's children, children of wisdom, in other words. The fickle children of their own disposition, in verse 32, and children who follow wisdom, in verse 35. Even the word for children is different here. What's Jesus talking about? Wisdom will be proved right by our children. Well, the wisdom that he's talking about is what uh, happens in uh, verse, oh, what verse is that? Verse 29, when it says, God, it talks about God's way. And in verse 30, when it talks about God's purposes, it's talking about the same thing here. This is the, the wisdom that's being talked about, is the way of God. Those who follow the way of God, Will be prove will prove right his ways. Those who follow the way of God, those those who are the children of God, follow the way of God, and they'll prove that this wisdom is right. Okay, so you've got these two different kinds of children. I think it's really interesting here, and this is the last thing. So if you'll hang with me for a moment, uh, we'll be done. The words for children are different. Verse thirty-two. Notice. Uh, they are like children. The children that's just, that are described there is just a word for a young child. Uh, nothing here to speak of, really. It's just a little one, these little ones. They, you're like them. They're playing in the marketplace. Probably Jesus isn't picking on kids. He's picking on the fact that the particular kids in their illustration, his illustration, can't agree on what kind of God they want to follow. Okay? The other children in verse 35... The children being referred to here, uh, it's a different word that's used, and it refers to those who look to another, uh, that look to another as being, um, so to speak, a father in faith, and so to become a disciple. It's a word for a disciple. So disciples of wisdom, disciples of wisdom will prove it to be right, is what Jesus is saying here. In other words, when people live it out, when people adopt his way, and follow it out, they prove his way is right. Come on. I think you can even see this. Um, 
in our world, if you look at somebody who's really living right and people who really live wrong, can you see the difference? Can you? Can you? Can you see that there's something that is quality about a life well lived? A life that's selfless, a life that follows God. You might say, man, they make, they, I'm not talking about bitter Christians that have never gotten over whatever's happened or living in unforgiveness or whatever. I'm not talking about that. You know what I'm, you know what I mean? There are some people that they don't do justice to the word Christian. But I'm talking about when you see somebody who's authentic, who's living in right relationship with God with the joy of the Lord on their life. People say there's something about that I want. They may not even want to admit that. But there's something about that that says, yes, that's the right, that's the right goal. Even if I don't agree how to get there, that's what I want. That's what I want to be. And I can tell you, I've had I've seen this in my own extended family, is that my parents were were people who chose to follow God. And their family looks a lot different than some of their siblings who chose not to follow God. Some of them came in later in life. And they had regrets because they said, well, this Christianity thing is not really that important. And somehow my parents, when they were young, they weren't doing it exactly right. But somewhere in their early marriage, they became devout followers of Christ. And when they did, they decided we're going to raise our family in a certain way. And it made things different. Some of you are doing that same thing. Some of you are the pioneers that your family isn't doing this, but you're doing it. And it looks different. It looks differently from the other way. And wisdom will be proved right over time in God's children. You might say, well, I don't see much change. When you're growing, you don't always see the change. Other people see it in you. And eventually you see it in yourself. Like when your genes don't fit anymore, you realize that something's changed. And when that happens over time, God is honored. Amen. This passage is about trusting in God and doing it God's way. And John's like, Jesus, you're different from what I expected. Is Am I wrong in following you? And Jesus is willing to, to answer honest questions. John didn't stop being righteous. He didn't stop trusting in God. But he had some questions. And Jesus answered those questions. He didn't get offended. He answered the questions. And I think John has finished strong. Okay. Then you have others who have decided that they're not going to follow the way of God because it doesn't suit them. We're looking at it wrong when we look at it that way. It's not whether God suits us. It's whether we will suit him. You, you understand what I mean? I'm not suggesting we have to get good in order to get into the kingdom. I'm saying we have to adjust our lives to God because he is God and we are not. Too often we've been living at the center of our own Aristotelian uh, solar system where we're the center. Remember how they used to believe that the earth is the center and everything revolved around the earth? And then they had the Copernican discovery that, no, wait, the sun is standing still, or at least in our solar system it appears to be. And then we revolve around that. And so when the sun comes up, it's not the sun coming up, it's the earth that's turning. Can you believe that? And I think some of us need that kind of paradigm shift in our life where we realize we're not the center. God's the center. Amen? Let me suggest these three things, and they're just sentences. Number one, can we trust the Lord enough to walk with him? Just trust that he's doing it right enough to walk with him. Can we trust him enough to do that? Number two, can we trust him in the unknown because of the known? Okay, John, I don't understand what you're doing, Jesus, but I know something of who you are. Can we trust him in the unknown? And can I suggest to you, if you don't know what's going on right now, and you don't know what God is about at this moment, trust what you do know about him, and trust him and walk with him in the dark. Can you trust him that much? Third, trust in the Lord in the way that you live. It's not just a mental ascent where we say, yes, I believe that. 
it's saying my life is behind it. My whole being is behind it. My emotions, I'm going to get my emotions behind it. I'm going to get my thinking behind it. I'm going to get my actions behind it. I'm going to do all of that because he's trustworthy. Because wisdom will be proved right by children who really follow. In our mind, we have this division between thinking and doing. In the Hebrew mind, you are what you do. Okay? It, there's a holistic view. We've divided all ourselves up into spirit, soul, and body, and we've got these platonic uh, philosophy that underlies why we see a division between the material and the immaterial. And, and, and there is a spiritual aspect of us. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying in terms of our response, it needs to be holistic. All of ourselves given over to God. And when that happens, you will prove wisdom right. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention. I know this was uh, an involved text, but it's so important. We're we're talking about the ministry of Jesus and kind of been uh, working through that a little bit as we uh, prepare ourselves for Jesus' resurrection that we're going to celebrate here in a couple of weeks. Not everybody said yes to Jesus, but he was the same Jesus towards everybody, if you know what I mean. And he'll be the same for you and me. I'd like to invite you to respond to him today. Zach's going to sing a song. These altars open if you want to come. If you don't, make an altar where you're at. But would we today just say a prayer like this? Jesus, yes to you. Even if I don't understand, even if it's different from what I expect, I'm going your way. Okay, if you've never prayed that prayer before, start with this. God, be merciful to me. I've not gone your way. But I believe your death in some way forgives that. And your resurrection means that you're a Lord that I can live with day to day. So I just want to trust you and give my life over to you. And a prayer like that will change everything. And if you've already prayed that prayer or a prayer like that, and today we need to reaffirm, God, I'm trusting you. Maybe it's you've got a bunch of stuff in your life right now you don't understand. That's okay. He hasn't called us to problem-free living. He's called us to live in the problems of life in a way that will honor him. Can we do that today? Trust him with it. These altars are open if you'd like to pray. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.